Good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John chapter 3 as we continue along in our series, By This We Know. The text that we'll be camping out in today spans verses spans from verse 11 to verse 18. Let's read them together. John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Another very straightforward passage in terms of the main point here, and that's that Christians should love one another in deed and truth or in action in truth. And so coming out of a section where he's just clarified that Christians are going to sin, but they're not going to do sin. They're not going to practice sin, which is an expression of hardened rebellion against God called lawlessness. After that, he goes back to what they have heard from the beginning. Okay? This is very familiar territory by now. What you have heard from the beginning. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, the section break in your ESV obscures the fact that this follows organically from the last section, right? So if you back up to, to verse 10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so it is connected to that. And then John gives us this very, very compelling contrast, which is why we read Genesis chapter 4 as the scripture reading. He gives us the example of Cain and Abel. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, we heard in the scripture reading that Cain murders his brother Abel in what is an extremely well-known Bible story. And in fact, the, the verb here is it's brutal. The word John uses, it's not just kill or murder, it's espaxin. It's something like slaughter. Cain slaughters his brother. But what isn't quite as well-known is that as a result of Cain being this the first recorded murderer in Scripture, that he kind of becomes this archetypical sinner in later tradition, Jewish tradition, and, and even in the New Testament. And you might be, that might sound a little bit surprising, given that it was mom and dad who, uh, who ruined everything. But, but this understanding of Cain would have been 
familiar to the audience. In fact, in Jude chapter 11, when it's talking about false prophets, it describes them as walking in the way of Cain. That's a really generic designation for just evil. Michael Green, commenting on that, says that Cain stands for the cynical, materialistic character who defies God and despises man. He is devoid of faith and love. And so, in the flow of this section, Cain is this personification of anomia or lawlessness that we talked about last time we were together, or last time I was up here, because I was uh, uh, our brother Michael preached for us last week in my stead. And so Cain is this personification of lawlessness at work, being of the devil, which we heard from our scripture reading two weeks ago, was a murderer from the beginning. Cain was his. Cain is associated with being of the evil one. Um, and, and even more interesting than that is the relationship of, his, of the brotherhood between Cain and Abel and John's audience and the people who have just gone out. So in light of their relationship, you would think that Cain would demonstrate love to Abel. But he does the opposite. They're brothers, right? Right? Similarly, those who have gone out from John's audience, they're calling themselves brothers. They're calling themselves brothers, yet like Cain, they hate those who are actually brothers and walking in the light. And as it turns out, that parallels quite nicely with the insight, the reason John gives us for why Cain killed Abel in the second half of the verse. And why did he murder him? John asks. It's a fine question. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Hebrews 11.4 advances a similar explanation by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So they were brothers, but only at a physical level, you might say, at a kind of a superficial level. Some of you have family members that are technically family, but I mean, you don't even remember the last time you've talked to them. They're brothers, but this is the most unbrotherly love thing that could possibly be done, right? They were brothers, but they weren't made of the same stuff. They were brothers at, at, at a certain level, but they weren't actually made of the same stuff, so to speak. It's out of his, it's out of his sin that desired to rule over him that Cain brings this deficient sacrifice. Presumably, it was deficient. Because Abel brought the, the first, he brought the best offering that he could possibly have brought. He brought something that was worthy of the Lord, whereas Cain brought something, but it really wasn't the best. So out of his sinfulness, he brings his offering. Out of his righteousness, Abel brings his offering. And so you got kind of the picture of two contrasted offerings right next to each other. It says that Cain hated Abel. For it, And so John uses the historical example to deliver the imperative here. Do not, verse, th verse 13, do not be surprised 
Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. In the only place where John in this letter addresses his audience as brothers, the only place, he's always talking to his little children, right? And they're on different levels in a sense. Here he comes down, as it were, brothers, us together. Do not be surprised. You know, remember how Cain hated Abel, even though they were brothers? Okay? Don't be surprised when the world hates you. And it doesn't matter if they call themselves brothers while they're doing it. In fact, they may very well lean on designations like that. Who knows? Who knows? The world is going to hate you for the same reason. The same reason. But, but here's a question you might ask. How does me living righteously translate in the world into the world hating me? I mean, that's a good question, right? I mean, as far as I'm aware, a, a Buddhist living faithfully doesn't garner the hate of the world. Nobody cares, honestly. It's not upsetting, folks. Well, what is it exactly? Why is it that living faithfully elicits the hate of the world? It's a very good question, I think. And it lies, I would suggest, in the same phenomena we hear, uh, that, I'm sorry, that was accomplished by Noah's faithfulness, and we hear about it in Hebrews 11 as well. Listen to this. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, that is, that's the flood, when I'm going to flood the earth, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So he was, had faith in God, he obeyed God, he listened to God, and what happened as a result, the last couple of verse. By this, that by his obedience, by his trusting in the Lord, being faithful, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He so his obedience, and then we have, that's an interesting relationship there. Why does his righteousness, how did, it, his, how did it condemn the world? By this he condemned the world. And here's what I'm suggesting. When someone stands next to someone else who's acting more righteously than they are, neither person is perfect, but it's a comparison. When someone's acting more righteously than they are, they don't only sense that there is a difference of opinion and a preferred course of action. In the Christian case, they sense that that person believes is that and they they rightly sense this that the person that they are being contrasted with believes that they are doing something or they are living in a way that is morally superior to this other person they are in fact doing life in the fear of the lord as it should be the right way to do it and this person is not I have been in multiple situations, and probably so have you. Not saying anything special about myself. You've experienced this too, where someone feels judged or condemned simply by what you will not do or what you do that contrasts with what they do right next to you. I've had people feel judged or condemned simply by saying, I'm actually, I'm not going to do that. 
That's it. It's all it takes. Not a word has to be uttered in an effort to shame or condemn or any of it. And maybe not even for me. I'm just not going to participate in this when people ask me why. May explain, but not a word has to be uttered. It is simply experienced directly and forcefully by this obvious contrast. Oh, okay, I'm doing this. In fact, I'll, I'll, let me give you an example. Oh, the examples that aren't scripted are so dangerous. Hold on, let me think. Um, actually, no, I'm not going to give that example. I'm not going to give that example. I'm not going to give that example. It's a good one, but I'm not going to give it. So, but but sometimes people will, in the workplace, for example, say that we are going out after work to do this or that and the other. Do you want to come? And, and it may just say, like, well, what are we going to do exactly? Oh, we're going to go do this, that, and the other. And I remember saying, I'm not. Well, why? Well, because fill in the blank with regards to what they were talking about. And just when I explained it, all of a sudden, this person who was talking to me, you could just feel the condemnation and the judgment on their shoulders. Not that I was doing it, but you could they are the ones who felt condemned. Because they were standing next to someone who said, I'm not going to participate in that because it's not okay. That is a recipe, brothers and sisters, for people hating you. It's a recipe for people resenting you. And as we'll see in the application, tragically, sometimes Christians get caught in this trap. They lapse into the same sin towards other Christians. John says, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Do you think that you're living a better life than the world? And when I say that, I mean, do you think that you're walking in the fear of the Lord? Your answer is, yes, I'm walking in the fear of the Lord. Do you think people should repent and believe and walk in the fear of the Lord? If your answer is yes, then what I'm saying is, you believe that you are doing it right on a macro level and that people who are not doing those things are doing it wrong. And it's not a difference of opinion. There's an objective superiority to living in Christ. That is why the world will hate you. Not the case with a Buddhist. They're Buddhist. People think, oh, I'm just being honest. That's interesting. Let them have their thing over there. Whatever. They don't feel that same condemnation right up next to it. They don't. Do not be surprised. We know, John continues, that unlike Cain and those like him, that we have passed from death to life. We've passed out of death into life because we love God. The brothers, whoever does not love, abides in death. Notice that, glor- that, that gloriously here, past is in the past tense. Or more specifically, you can't see it in the English, but it's in the perfect tense. So something that happened in the past but kind of has abiding effects into the present. It's something that has already happened. We have already passed out of death into life. But also notice that Recall uh, uh, that life for John, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Life for John is this rich concept. It's this thick concept of life, eternal life, that is not simply having DNA and a pulse forever. It is a kind of blessed life that is in the sun that will happen to last forever. Okay? But what makes eternal life this incredible promise is not just being above ground forever with DNA and a pulse. It is a certain kind of life. First John 5.11, he's, he's already confirmed this, but he's going to confirm it more. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
The life is in His Son, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him, back to Sunday school, who is true, union with Christ. We are in His Son, Jesus Christ, and it's He is the true God and eternal life. John, 1 John chapter 1, He is the eternal life who has been made manifest to us. So eternal life is, is not just living indefinitely, it is a particular kind of living that makes it desirable. Can I just say, if the promise of the gospel is just having DNA and a pulse forever, that I'm out. I don't, I don't want to live. I don't want to live, live forever. Not like this. I don't. I don't. The promise of eternal life is much, much more. It is a blessed kind of life. In the Son. That's, that's what we know, but how do we know it? What's the identifier? Well, he says, by our, how do we know? We, we know because of our love for the brothers, and it's as simple as that. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, that you, if you have love for one another. So a failure to love does not represent a deficient believer, someone whose life is characterized by not loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not someone who's just needs to become more mature. What John is saying is that's someone who abides in death instead. Whoever does not love abides in death in John's dualistic framework. Or to put it more candidly, someone who doesn't love, someone whose life is characterized by practicing hate towards brothers and sisters in Christ isn't a flawed Christian. They're not a Christian at all. And it doesn't matter what they say to try to recover from that. For John, hate and love are action words and not feeling words, as we're going to see. He leaves no doubt as to why this is the case in one of the most disturbing verses of the New Testament. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Talked about this before, but the only two options for John are love and hate. That is very different than how we use the terms. Isn't it? Isn't it very different? Because we've got words that fit in the gaps. It's not just this or this. There's a lot of other things. We've got people that but frankly, most things and most people, I would say, we would not claim to love or hate, many of us. We might know someone and like them, but we don't love them. We might not prefer somebody, but we don't hate them. We might not really know someone very well, so we don't really have a particular disposition towards them. The way we commonly use the terms leaves all of these different dispositions. But for John, it's, it's very cut and dry. In terms of theological categories. You love the brothers, you hate the brothers. That's it. Action-based, not feeling-based. Now certainly, feelings can, can and do accompany that action. I'm not saying he has a, a, a view of love and hate where we become automaton. That, that's not it. But as we're going to see in the example that's given, and we've already seen in the letter, love shows up and shows out. Love is primarily understood as action and not simply feelings of well-being. 
But let's not move the, past this very unsettling equation of those who hate their brother with a murderer, like Cain. Everyone who hates their... So if it, if it, takes, if it makes it sound worse, everyone who does not love his brother is a murderer. That's as strong as language gets. That is as strong as language gets. Can you imagine if we felt the full effect of this? When we are tempted to not help, for example, brothers and sisters in Christ, which I'm skipping ahead and giving some of this away, maybe because we don't like them, maybe because we think they've wronged us in the past, that counts for John as hate. Counts for John as hate. And to entertain not helping somebody when we have the means to do so in that manner is to entertain murder and acting like Cain the slaughterer. It's hard to process. It really is. And this is slightly different, slightly different, a different angle than the related passage in Matthew 5 that I had read. It doesn't say anything about um, I won't go into that. It's different. Slightly different. Now I skipped ahead for just a second and I gave it away. But if hate and love are not based primarily in feelings but are based in actions, what kind of actions count? For example, if I don't murder another Christian, does that mean that I'm on the loving side by default? Right? Is that what it means? Is that what it means? Can I just duck this whole thing if I've not murdered somebody? What does love look like exactly? And thankfully, John doesn't leave us guessing at all. We get verse 16. By this we know love. That is to say, we know what love looks like. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, that he lays down his life for his friends. But you might immediately think, and a lot of commentators have pointed out, that there's a problem here. It's like, hold on, wait a second. You're telling me that in order to kind of be on the love side of the dualistic framework, that I've got to sacrifice my life for other people, like Jesus sacrificed his life? It even says ought. It doesn't say you should be willing to, to be killed for somebody. This is something it says that you ought to be about. That's the part that makes it challenging. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, so if someone said, true or false, you should be laying down your life, seeking, to, seeking opportunities to lay down your life for brothers and sisters in Christ. True or false? You're going to have to come up with, you're gonna, what would you say? So I would suggest the answer to the question is yes. We should be looking to actively lay down our lives for other believers and sometimes that may look like literally dying. Sometimes that may look like dying. Remember that the manner in which Jesus laid his life down for us can't be an exact parallel because he's the shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep 
to accomplish something that we can't accomplish by laying down our lives for other people. Now, the audience would have understood John's case and even the imagery. Although it happened, shepherds did not regularly die for their sheep. Okay? It wasn't a profession where you had people regularly dying. Instead, they spent their life caring for and serving and sacrificing so that their sheep could thrive. In other words, them being a shepherd uh, and benefiting the sheep depended on them actually being around to do so, to care for. Nevertheless, caveat aside, we are to look at this incredible example of Christ as as the kind of paradigm of self-sacrificial love and be willing to entertain, uh, and really not entertain, except the idea that sometimes that may mean literally spilling blood and laying down our lives for brothers and sisters in Christ. But it doesn't mean we actively seek out death. We do not seek out martyrdom. James Denny gives a beautiful little illustration here. Listen to what he says to clarify this point. He said, If I were sitting on the end of a pier on a summer day enjoying the sunshine and the air, and someone came along and jumped into the water and drowned to prove his love for me, I should find it quite unintelligible. I might be much in need of love, but an act in no rational relation to any of my necessities could not prove it. But if I had fallen over the pier and were drowning and someone sprang into the water and at the cost of making my peril or what but for him would be my fate, his own save me from death, then I should say greater love hath no man than this. And then I should say it intelligibly because there is a relation between the sacrifice which love had made and the necessity from which it redeemed. So I'm suggesting that we should be actively seeking to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters in Christ, including, at certain times, death, as we look to the example of Jesus Christ, who physically laid down his life. But that adopting this more servant-hearted posture in general is what John has in mind here, is powerfully confirmed in the next practical example in the next verse. Get my remote back here. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? One commentator points out, this, this has got to be in here because how relevant would the verse be otherwise if it was just talking about laying down your physical life? How, how often does the average Christian have such opportunities to be as heroic as to die for other people? Not many. There's got to be something more, and there is. And so he gives this piece of, here's what this looks out, fleshed out in the run of life. And it's not physically dying in this case. It is self-sacrificially loving. It is self-sacrificially loving. He used, the word that he, when he uses the word world here, he is using the word not like he used it in verse 13, which is those who hate God, but he's using it like he did back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And when he says the things necessary, the things of has the world's goods, he's talking about things that are necessary to sustain life here in the realm of the ruins. This realm that has been affected by the fall. 
food, water, shelter, clothing. These are these needs. Brother in need specifically. And he says that if someone has the necessary resources for such survival, but they close their heart, which is a great, it is a kind of an interpretation, but it's a great translation of, the, of what's trying to be communicated in the Greek. They close their heart against him, meaning inaction. Meaning, I don't help. I've got the resources. Someone is in need. I don't help them. Then John rhetorically asks, how does God's love abide in them? And of course the answer is, it doesn't. Not, not with any degree of consistency. That is not abiding in the love of Christ. That is to practice hate. And that's the case even if you think the person is really nice. You might not have anything against them. I see them. They're in need. They need these things. I have these things. Hey, they're, they seem to be a really nice person. I don't help them. For John, again, that's, that counts as hate. That counts as hate. And that is abiding in death. By the way, James too. James says the same thing. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's talking about a dead faith, a faith that's in faith in name only. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, okay, he's needs. And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled. Good on you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, you know. If that's what you say to them, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What, that faith doesn't save. That's a hollow box. That's a faith Halloween costume, not a real faith. And John says a similar thing over here. And so he says this. Little children, let us love in word, not love. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know, we love to romanticize certain concepts and certain phrases. Loving well, walking alongside, bearing the burdens, a whole multitude of expressions that we have imbued with kind of these romantic ideas of conceptual beauty in the abstract. And nothing's wrong with the phrases, by the way. But in the, the abstract, they're just so beautiful. But talking about loving well and Bearing burdens and walking alongside without action and authenticity is what characterizes frauds. Empty talkers. Not what characterizes those who are abiding in Christ. They are the ones who are abiding in death. G.P. Lewis says this so well in a quote that is often mistaken for C.S. Lewis because people usually just say Lewis and it sounds great, so they think C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he says. He says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Oh, just love the idea of love. 
And John says, don't talk about it, be about it. Don't talk about it, be about it. Because Christians should love one another in deed and truth, even when it's inconvenient and sometimes even when it comes at an incredible cost. And sometimes when it comes at the cost of your life. Are you prepared to make that kind of sacrifice for the brothers and sisters in Christ? Some of us are, some of us aren't. Sometimes some of us are, other times perhaps I'm not. But you have to ask yourself the question. This is radical. This is how the family of God serves one another, takes care of one another. Now I want to talk away about two ways to practice this truth particular, in particular. The first is dealing with this, this idea of feeling condemned by the righteousness of others. Cain killed Abel because of his righteousness, but not just that. Remember, it was his righteous acts up close next to his. It was the contrast. It wasn't like he heard about them from a distance either. I mean, it was right there. He was standing next to someone who was just living more righteously than him. And whose offering was accepted as a result. He felt it. And as I said earlier, as long as we struggle with sin, we will struggle with lapsing into this same pattern in our, in our, towards others in our lives. And here's an example of kind of how it goes in, in ordinary life. Just one of many examples I could give. You're having a conversation with somebody, family, whatever, about what shows you're watching. Someone mentions a particular show that they're watching. They said, yeah, you know, it's a really good show. Love the story. But it's got a ton of sex and nudity in it. That's what they say. I say, okay. Well, I'm glad it's a good show. It sounds like it got a good storyline. Um, that's probably not going to be a show that we're going to watch. And that just like that, there it went. The pin just got pulled silently on the grenade. You don't have to say anything else. The silent internal dialogue of that person begins as they feel the implicit judgment. They think, well, I, I watched that show. I watched those, I watched those kind of shows. They obviously have a different standard than mine. Obviously, they think it's better or they wouldn't be doing it. They're obviously more concerned about what they see than, than, than I. I wonder what they think about my mat maturity level, my wisdom in doing that. You know? Driving home, it percolates a little bit more. They just think they're, they're holier than me. They're more righteous than me. They're living more godly than me. I, I, I looked bad and I felt bad. I mean, I looked bad in that moment of silent awkwardness. Now I'll resent them. I'll, rem I'll remember that. I'll remember that. And on the story goes. My guess, my hope in this piece of application is that everyone in here has been on both sides of this one at some point in life. My hope is that everyone has been on both sides of this one at some point in life. What do you do when that happens you feel that way? The first thing, I'm going to give you three things. What do you do when you feel that contrastive condemnation? The first is this first. It's just a basic understanding. It's really more of a philosophical, psychological principle than anything else. But it's just everyone, you have to understand first that everyone believes that they are right about what they believe or they wouldn't believe it. Okay? 
No one goes around believing false things. It's not even possible. You could believe that something's false, but you don't think it's false that you believe it's false. You don't understand? I mean, people don't go around. Uh, everyone holds what they believe at any given moment because they actually think it's correct. And people adopt courses of action because they think it's best. Because they think it's people who are, who are let's say, let's back that one up. People adopt courses of action who are trying to live before the Lord because they think this is the best way to do it. Or they think that's the, at least the very best for them. There couldn't be a wiser way to do it, at least for them in their circumstances. They're doing it as well as it can be done. If they thought it could be done better, they'd be doing it that way. And so there's, there's just an there's just a initial realization that people do what they do because they believe that it's wise or correct or they'd be doing something else. So that And therefore, that implies that people who disagree with them are mistaken. That's just logic. That's not, uh, that's not a personal attack on somebody, okay? All right, if I think this team's going to win and you think they're going to lose, I think you're wrong. And that's, just, that's not personal. It's just implied by my belief, okay? So there's always going to be, in disagreement, people feeling some kind of aspersions, feeling some kind of judgment upon them, just because they feel they, an implied sense of disagreement. But it's not personal. It's not personal. Oh, it certainly can get personal. But it's not necessarily personal. Okay, but the second thing, the more important thing, that out of the way, everyone always believes they're right or they wouldn't believe it. And by the way, when I say that, sometimes people believe they're right in withholding judgment. I'm withholding judgment. That's the best thing to do. But everyone is trying to do what seems to be the best thing. Okay, the second thing, you see, you feel contrastive condemnation and shame. It's to consider the merits of it. Listen, brothers, let's just, be, let's just be honest for a second here. Sometimes people are on to something, and you know it. Sometimes people are on to something when they say, I'm not doing that, and you are, or I'm going to make sure that I take care of this, and you aren't. They're on to something, and you know it. You need to be honest. The reason you feel that way is because you're getting exposed. And you want to listen because you will have the opportunity to mature very quickly in that moment. If you will listen well, you have the opportunity to repent. If you need to, be honest. So that's sometimes what happens. People say that and you feel shame is because you're walking in sin. And honestly, you know it. And you feel implicitly called out by it. So don't let your pride make, sure, make you hate somebody. You did it as an opportunity. But, but in some cases, people are just very sensitive to engaging in certain things because of their past or because of some of their certain weaknesses that they have. Sometimes people don't say or do or watch and engage in this because they're factually mistaken about certain things. Sometimes people's theology is off in this area. Sometimes people's philosophical ethics is just far too simplistic. And their conscience, in all these cases, someone's conscience would likely condemn them if they did or did not do this thing, whatever the case may be. And whatever is not done from faith is sin. So they don't need to do it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you are being condemned by their doing or not doing something. You need to listen. Listen to why. You should be quicker to understand what someone is saying or doing next to you that makes you feel that way than you are to be an apologist for your own choices. Quicker to listen than be just an apologist for your own choices to make yourself feel better. And most importantly, 
do not let your heart and actions progress towards resentment and hate toward a brother and sister in Christ. And so this particular application, I have the great fortune of an excellent real-life example coming up. Halloween. Oh, Halloween. We surveyed the room. I am 100% positive that we would have people who could, care le- who could not care less about dressing their kids up in Paw Patrol characters and getting candy. And some people think that that would be partic- participation in, in uh, uh, witchcraft and evil. And you're going to have conversations about, do you want to come trick-or-treating at my house? And some people are going to say, well, we don't do trick-or-treating. It's going to happen. Happens every Halloween. Just get ready for it. Now you can get ready for it with the ability to think through it a little bit better. It's going to happen. There are, there are going to be these comparative contrasts. And I just want to urge you, before you write someone off as a loony, or before you feel condemned in your heart, because someone thinks they're better than you or wiser than you or above the fray, just listen. Just listen. Be willing to just listen and ask some questions. Okay? Great opportunity in real life coming up for everyone. That's the first part. Dealing with a sense of contrastive condemnation that can often breed hate like it did in Cain towards his righteous brother Abel. Do not let it fester. Deal with it. Deal with that. The second thing is this idea of brothers and sisters in need. In need here. The family of God is, is called to provide for the needs of one another, even to the point of radical self-sacrifice. And perhaps that's a word for someone today who needs to be about being a little bit more self-sacrificial instead of expecting people to give, give, give to them. What does radical self-sacrifice for the brothers in Christ look like? Do I demonstrate that in my own life, we might ask ourselves? I take it that that's fairly clear, even if it's challenging. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's fairly clear, I think. But John's call to action is qualified here by two factors. The first one is the needs. What exactly are we talking about? My son, is he loves to tell his sister that there's a big difference between wants and needs. I want some water. I know, I need some water. No, you just want some water. What are the needs here? What are we talking about? Because if we're to be about this, we got to know what we're supposed to be doing, how to look at someone in need. Well, how do I know the difference between someone in need and someone in want for good things? If I'm going to know my task here, I've got to figure that out, right? And what I'm suggesting, and the parallel with James seems to very strongly confirm that we are talking about those basic necessities for sustaining life here in the realm of the ruins. Water, Food, shelter, clothing, the needs of the body, the needs to survive, these needs. It doesn't mean a cell phone. It doesn't mean a car or even a nice car. Certainly not a nice car. Sometimes the word needs for us, and especially in 21st century America, is this very elastic term where all of a sudden needs is like, oh, needs means having my needs met would mean like living like a king in certain parts of the world, or a queen as the case may be. You cannot go to someone and bind their conscience by the word of God to help someone else with their needs 
when those things are actually elements that just make life easier or more pleasant. You might feel called to serve them out of the love of your heart. Great! Do that! Pay someone, get somebody a cell phone. Excellent! There's self-sacrificial love that happens like that across our church all the time. But that's different than the, than the call that we ought to be about meeting needs. That's different. That's different. And that doesn't change because in the 21st century, people generally have more stuff that they've gotten used to living with. I'm making this point to guard from abuses on both sides. One is people making illegitimate demands of other people. You have these things. Why aren't you giving this to me? Feeling entitled to things. But on the other side, it's people feeling condemned because they aren't serving people in the very specific way that they want to be served. Oh, I want to be served. Here, well, will you take this? No, I want to be served in this exact way. Well, I will purchase this for you. Oh, but I'd rather have the money. Oh, I want, to, I want some help here, please. I need. Well, here's what we'll do to help all, but I want to be helped in this particular way. We are called to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ. But needs so understood in this particular passage, and I would say in, in general in the New Testament, James is a comparison. Water, food, shelter, clothing, help somebody to live And not wants things that might make life easier or make or allow people to keep up with the Joneses in 21st century America. That's not needs. Number two, the word John uses here for see is not just uh, something you're just aware at a conceptual level or something that physically passes in front of your eyes. Theore here. One, one scholar says the term denotes a continual contemplative observation in which the beholder pauses to appreciate and understand the circumstances of a case. In other words, of course, and of course this makes particular sense in the first century, John is talking about the needs of someone who is more or less immediately in your relational or even perhaps geographical proximity that you have an ability to, and you have an ability to straightforwardly meet those needs in light of that proximity. Why am I even bothering to make the point here? Because if you are not careful, you will be led to believe by very well-intended people that you have an obligation to be meeting the needs of every believer that you hear of in need. Most frequently now through social media or email or even inquiries on our church website that Susan and I field. Random needs, random people, people across the world. Regardless of your level of relational or geographic proximity, you need to be about it. And I just want to say, nuances and caveats I could make aside is simply not true. Just like Paul, John never conceived that someone could possibly aware, possibly be aware, excuse me, of immediate needs of people on the other side of the world that could somehow be helped anonymously and with indefinite succession because there is always going to be people uh, who are in need. And I think there are fantastic ways to help people 
who are in need. You, you look at places like Compassion International. You look at parachurch organizations who are doing this. You know that there are needs out there. Okay, and so we want to help be about meeting needs. Yes, but that's very different from thinking that you are called to every time that you hear a story about someone anywhere who is in need, going and meeting that need. Now, if the Lord lays it on your conscience to do so, that's exactly what you should do. But I want to guard this from abuse because I also see this one abused. We're called to care for, in, for everything and everyone at all the time, all over the world, to bear the burdens of the whole world. We can get the news right there on our phone. I've got this tragedy and this tragedy and this tragedy and this happening on the other side of the world and this happening out there and this. And it's, ah, oh, oh, I can just keep scrolling and just get lost. I can get crushed. Look at all these needs. I can't even begin to meet them. What, am I, what do I need to be doing? I'm not doing enough. I need to get out there and get it done more. I see so many people racked with guilt because they're not doing something to change the world in that kind of a way, fueled by texts like this. And I'm just I'm suggesting that that Paul and John and the New Testament authors, when, when they said to bear one another's burdens and to help those who are in need, they never imagined instant access to the entire globe of people. And I'm not saying we shouldn't harness that in the abilities of technology to help out, but I don't want people with condemned consciences because they're not changing the world. Rather, like the Good Samaritan, you know who we're called to help the physical needs of? The people who are right in front of us and that we have the ability to help and who are within proximity to us relationally, geographically. And that's not to say that every single person should, it's just that's, that sets the boundary. That sets the boundary of the ought, is what I'm suggesting. It sets the boundary of the ought. We're called to lay down our lives for each other self-sacrificially and serve one another. Even to the point, in some cases, of losing our lives. So may God give us wisdom to do that well. Let's pray. God, we pray for the grace and the humility to look at our own hearts our own resentments, our own senses of entitlement, our own desire for security that makes us not part with certain things, our own love of convenience that makes us not take or tempted not to take certain courses of action. We pray, Lord, that we would identify those things, that we would confess them to you and that you would forgive us because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we turn to this supper, we pray that you would help us examine our hearts, not in some kind of morbid act of introspection, but in an honest reflection of the disposition of our hearts and our attitudes. Where we need to turn from sin, repent once more, receive forgiveness, and walk in the light.